Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for another chance to come back together and study your word. It's really cool that we get to go back to the beginning and open up Genesis. We thank you so much for what we learned and what we discovered in the book of Revelation, and we're excited to start the cycle over uh, and go back to the beginning and see the contrast from beginning to end. God, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, We ask that it blesses you and that your word is clear and that we can understand you a little better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Genesis, let's, uh, let's kind of talk about the book in general. So I like to think of Genesis, uh, the best way I've ever seen it put is uh, there's a book called The Bible from 30,000 Feet by uh, Pastor Skip Heitzig. And he writes it this way, um, or at least this is my interpretation of what he wrote. Genesis is really kind of two parts. You have chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Now in chapters 1 through 11, you have sort of four big events that take place. You have the creation, you have the fall of mankind, you have the flood, and then you have the aftermath. And then after those four big events, you move into chapter 12 through 50, and it becomes about four major individuals. And that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so through these events, you get to see a lot of different ways that God tried to reveal himself to humanity. Um, And so you have Genesis is really about origins. It's the origin of things. So you look at the very beginning, it's the origin of everything. It's the origin of time, matter, space, energy. It's the origin of life. It's the origin of the human race. This is the early parts of Genesis. It's the origin of sin and death. It's the origin of redemption and the redemption story. It's the origin of prophecy. It's the origin of marriage. It is the origin, as you move into chapters 12 through 50, it is the origin of Israel. It is the origin of the patriarchs, the Hebrew race. So it moves from the human race to the Hebrew race. I like to think of Genesis as this. It's from the beginning to Egypt. And then the rest of the books of the law kind of take us from there. So that's sort of a brief overview of what Genesis is really about. And we'll talk about all of those things as we go through the book. So let's get started in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. There are a lot of pastors who say this might be the most important verse in the Bible. If you can believe this verse, everything else falls into place. It also sets the foundation for the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 when it talks about the creation. Because there's a lot of different ideas, a lot of different concepts of what the Genesis story is telling. But if we can all agree at least on this one thing, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can at least have common ground. In Hebrew, it is Bereshit Barach Elohim. The interesting thing about that verse in the Hebrew is that they use the word Elohim to describe God. Now, the singular version of that word for God is actually El. Elohim is a plural word. So it talks about a plurality, but it's used grammatically as a singular. 
So even in the very structure of the first verse of the Bible, we get the idea of God as a plurality, as a trinity. This is part of where the doctrine of the trinity comes from, right away in the first verse of the Bible. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, or over the face of the waters. And we're already introduced to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And this verse has been argued about because there's one of the ideas of the origin story of the earth. There's something called the gap theory. This is trying to take the modern understanding of the earth's age and the universe's age into account and try to create some sort of symbiosis with our understanding of God's word and what we understand through the natural world and science. And so the, the phrasing is this. The earth was without form and void, but it can be read based on the Hebrew word. The Hebrew words can be translated into English in this way. The earth became without form and void. And so the idea behind that ideology or that uh, interpretation of Genesis is this. We don't know at what time Lucifer fell from heaven. So if the fall of man resulted in judgment, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, we don't really know much about what happened when Lucifer fell. So if during creation and the creation story, Lucifer fell, was there some sort of judgment on the earth because God created the heavens and the earth, Lucifer falls, and then the earth becomes without form and void because of Lucifer's fall. And there's some sort of judgment on the earth that we're not really told much more about um, because this is really about God revealing himself to man, not about Lucifer's story. So God doesn't really go into it. That's sort of the idea of that interpretation. I don't really have a problem with that interpretation. It's not the way that I really take, but it is true. You can translate it that way. So I don't get really too upset about it. That's not how I take it, but that's fine. We'll get into that in a little bit. But that's one of the interpretations. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So right away, you see light is the first thing that God brings into existence. There, I talked about to this to the youth group about this a little bit. I had an art teacher who loved Ralph Waldo Emerson. And one of Ralph Waldo Emerson's quotes is, light is the first of painters. And we did an exercise where he closed all the shades in the room, and the room was on a dimmer, and he shut the lights completely off. And it's pitch black in the room, and you can't see anything. He slowly turns the dimmer up, and as light pours through the room, you start to see more shadow, more shape, more line, more color, because light brings everything to existence. It brings it to sight. And so he loved that quote. And I sort of took that to think, well, that's awesome because God, light is the first of painters, but really God is the first of painters. He's the first of the artists. And he started with light. Lines started to exist. Color started to exist. Shape started to exist. Sight came into play because light is poured out into the universe. And it's exactly what you would expect from our understanding of the beginning of the universe, that light would come first. In this large explosion where the universe began, you see heat 
so intense and so incredible that light is really what exists as the universe expands. So it's, it stands to reason with our scientific understanding of the beginning of the universe that light would come first. And at the end of it, God says it's good, and there is evening and there is morning, the first day. Now, the other inter another interpretation that I don't really hold to is this word day. In Hebrew is the word yam. Now, the word yam can be translated as a regular 24-hour existence day. It can be translated as just some sort of measure of time, any measure of time. Um, so there are some who have tried, again, to combine what we know from the natural world and from the sciences and geology and cosmology and thought, well, what if we just meant that, what if God meant that each day was actually just some sort of length of time, some sort of age? I think this one is pretty quickly debunked in that there are plant life. And so if plant life shows up during what, day four, I think, as we get through this, you'll see plant life shows up. And if it existed for thousands of years on its own, or millions of years on its own, or whatever the date, whatever the age you want it to be, the planet would get would get struggled by or, or strangled by greenhouse gases because there would be no animals to balance out the oxygen and carbon dioxide. Um, there's a symbiotic relationship between animals and plants. So if you went that long distance with only plants, then the planet really wouldn't be able to handle itself scientifically. So I think that that interpretation is pretty pretty easily debunked and doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I do think the one of the arguments against it is that this word yam, every other, times, every other time it's used in scripture with a number, it means a literal 24-hour day. And so if we allow in scripture to interpret itself, then we're going to look at this as though it's actually a 24-hour day. I will say this. It's interesting as we go through Genesis, when we see plants get created in our heads, even automatically. When you start interpreting this, you see a full-grown tree. When you see birds, you see a, a bird flying in the air. You don't assume that it started out as an infant or as a baby. When you see the land animals and the fish, you assume full-grown fish and whales and dolphins, and you assume full-grown hippos and elephants. You assume full-grown animals. When you see the birth of man, uh, at the end of chapter one and in chapter two, you see a full-grown human being. But the only time we don't ever link that interpretation in our minds is with the universe. For some reason, we think the universe had to be out of its infancy and take millions and billions of years to turn into what it needs to be. Instead, what if God created a universe that was at an age where it could sustain life? Because God created so that he could create life. So instead of waiting millions and millions of years for the universe to become adult enough to sustain life, he may have just created a universe that was able to sustain life, just like he created a human being that was already an adult. Um, and so I tend to lean more that direction because I think it's more incongruent with, with the rest of creation, with the rest of the creation story that we look at. So the first day. Then God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. He's creating the atmosphere and the waters. 
This is already very interesting because we're seeing light came first and then next water is essential to life. This is everything that we would expect based on what we know about the world and life and the origin of life. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. Let the herb that yields seeds and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So now we're seeing plant life emerge. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide them day from night, and let there be signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for the lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. God said, set them in the firmament in the heavens to give the light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So you start to see the heavens really come together, the cosmos, as the gravity starts spinning together, the lights become brighter and the stars start getting formed. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is this also sets up the origin of how the Jews view their calendar. You'll notice at the end of each day, it says there was evening and there was morning because to the Jewish calendar, the day starts at in the evening and it goes from evening to evening. So that's why the Sabbath is from Friday evening to Saturday evening, because it's evening and then morning, unlike our view of the world where we wake up and it's morning and then night. So that, that will be important as you move through the scriptures later. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created the creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day so as life, animal life, starts to populate, it starts with the water, and then it moves to birds, and that's the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring the living creatures according to its kind, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, and according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Again, another reference to the plurality of God, even though he's a singular God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. And to every beast on the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So that concludes chapter one. And you see the first six days of creation. And regardless of how you want to interpret the first chapter of Genesis, I take from it. I let the Bible interpret itself. I think it's a short period of time. I think God created a universe that was ready to sustain life. But if you look at the overview of what we just saw, it's exactly what you would expect based on our understanding of modern science. Light came first, then water, which is essential to the formation of life. The first life came out of the water, which represents, that's indicative of the fossil record, then birds, next. Then the beasts of the, of the earth, and then man last. So you see a progression of life that continues to get more complex, but each creature is independent of its own. There doesn't seem, it do, they don't seem to come from other creatures, and we'll get into that in chapter two. So it's exactly what you would expect looking at the fossil record. There is this continual progression of the complexity in life, and it all stems from first light, which represents everything we know about the beginning of the universe, and then everything we know about the origin of life is that water must be there first. And so this is, there, there are scientists, I wish I, I had the exact quote, uh, who have said, when you read Genesis chapter 1, it is exactly what you would expect if you only looked at the fossil record. So it's not a surprise now, the interesting thing, in the very beginning, you know, the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It implies very much that there was nothing. There, at one point, there was no time because there is a beginning. At one point, there was nothing because everything was created out of nothing. God created the heavens and the earth. There was once nothing. Well, up until the early 20th century, about the 1920s, let me back up a little bit. In the 1800s, in the 19th century, as modern science was born, people like Isaac Newton, Galileo, they expected, they had a Christian worldview. They expected science to be testable and understandable from their worldview because they believed in a creator and in a designer. And because they believed that, they expected to be able to interpret data from the universe and the world because the world was clearly designed by a God. And so they started to look and see the natural patterns in nature. And they weren't surprised that things made sense and had a lot of order and had a lot of design to it because they expected a designer. They expected nature and the world and the cosmos to reflect design because they believed in a designer. But then the Enlightenment era kind of hit the world. And they took a sort of Aristotelian view of the universe. This idea that the universe was infinite. And if the universe was infinite, there was infinite amount of time. 
And so there was an infinite amount of time for natural processes to take place and for life and the origins of things to spring about. So they started to create all sorts of ideologies and theories based on the fact that they believed that the universe was ever existent, this sort of Aristotelian idea. And so out of that was born Darwinian understanding. The very recently, the study of geology is changing. But up until very recently, the idea of geology and everything taking extremely long periods of time to form. The idea of, of Darwinian evolution and things having exponential amount of time to form and create and for mutations to take place. And so this was a very easy ideology to accept and to understand because to them, the universe had no beginning, it had no end. It was always self-existent. It always was there. And then unfortunately, for this ideology, Edwin Hubble peered out into the stars. And he started to notice that distant galaxies and distant stars all had a red shift to them. Let me explain what this means. Have you ever listened to like a motorcycle approaching your house? And it gets really, really loud as it, and higher pitched as it comes closer. And then as soon as it passes, it turns into a low volume. So, you know that sound, right? The reason that that's happening is because as something approaches you, the sound waves are getting shorter and shorter because it's getting closer. The second it passes you, it starts getting further away. So the volume switches to longer wavelengths. The same thing happens with light. So light that is approaching you tends to be ultraviolet as it gets closer because it's approaching you. And those are shorter wavelengths of light. Light that gets further away moves to the red end of the spectrum and move towards infrared, which are longer wavelengths. It means that it's moving away from you. So Edwin Hubble started to notice that everything around him was moving away from him. And this meant something astonishing, that the universe was expanding, which means, like a balloon, the universe is moving out. But if you wind back the clock, the universe was get, would get smaller, which meant there mu it must come to a single point and have a beginning and have no existence. He shared this information with Einstein, who was absolutely opposed to it, because Einstein came up with something called the cosmological constant. He came up with a mathematical formula to show that the push of the universe, and the expansion from the movement of the stars, and then the pull of gravity, somehow were this perfect balance to keep the universe in this ever-existing state so that it could be infinite. And he later said about his idea of the cosmological constant to create an infinite universe to buy into his own worldview was the biggest mistake of his scientific career. Because once he saw, and he visited Hubble, and he looked into his telescopes, and he started to see what Hubble told him, he realized the mistake that he made. And out of this understanding was born the Big Bang Theory and the idea of the beginning of the universe. And so around 1950, this became the popular scientific worldview. Unfortunately, they were steeped in hundreds of years of this other ideology and other theories that were based on this ever-existing, long-lasting universe. And now they have this opposing view based on scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning. So Moses had it right 1,500 years ago. 
I'm sorry, 3,500 years ago, around 1400 BC. When he wrote this, Moses had it right, and it took us until 1950 to understand that God's word was reality. So we know, second, before I get into chapter two, when I mentioned that date, 1400 BC, we recognize that date based on the biblical numbers counting back to the time of Moses. Um, and we'll get into this more in Exodus. We know that the books were written after the Exodus before Moses' death, sometime during the wilderness when he was on, on Sinai, which reflects around a 1400 BC timeline. And we know that Moses was the author. So you, you can reflect back to this timeline based on the actual biblical numbers and years that are given within the scriptures and the generations that were given um, to reflect back to when this book was written. But also, and even better for me, the biggest expert on who would have written this is Jesus. And in Matthew 19, you can see that he attributes the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible, directly to Moses. Um, and if Jesus is who he says he is, he would have known who wrote the book. And he attributes this to Moses, which means that that 1400 BC time frame is probably pretty accurate. Moving on. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work for which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field was grown for the Lord God had caused it to had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth, watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So you see the seventh day now, and God rests. This sets up the Sabbath, so it's the origin of the Sabbath. This also is the origin of biblical numbers. We know that seven is the number of completion because that's when God completed his work. He saw it complete on the seventh day. Interestingly, eight is also the number of new beginnings, and we'll see some more of that as we go through the scriptures. But this reflects very well. Let me explain. The seventh day is the day that God rested. The sixth day is the day of man. And the eight Eight is the number of new beginnings. You see this all throughout nature. You know, there's seven colors in the rainbow. There's seven notes in the scale, and the eighth note is the beginning of the new octave. You also see this historically in scripture. On the seventh day, God rested. The sixth day is the number of man. So the sixth day would be Thursday evening into Friday evening. But we also know that the Passover during Jesus' life happened on a Thursday. Thursday evening to Friday evening would have been Passover. Jesus was arrested the night of Passover and put on trial, and put on trial during the day and crucified by Thursday evening, or by Friday, by Friday evening, sorry. Um, so the sixth day, Jesus was crucified, Thursday evening to Friday evening. Jesus was crucified. The seventh day, the Sabbath day, the day on which God rested from Friday evening to Saturday evening, Jesus rested in the ground. I find this completely astonishing. And then the eighth day, the new beginnings, Sunday morning, 
Jesus rose from the grave. So even in the very beginning, in the first days of creation, God is telling us something about what he's going to do. And this idea of God resting really points all the way to the cross in the first chapter of Genesis. Then the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold in the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. And it is the one which grows toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Euphrates. So we're looking at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, the Euphrates River. We just went through Revelation. We saw references to all of those things in the end. So they're very important from the beginning to the end. Then the Lord God took the man and put them in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Oh, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat, in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. This is the first time that we've been reading that God sees something is not good. Everything has been good up until right now. What's missing? It's just Adam. He's by himself. God sees that as not good. Why? Because God is a relational God. God in his own existence as a trinity is used to relationship. And he sees man who, cre who he created in his image as someone who needs relationship. And he sees it as not good that man is alone. And so what does he do? All right. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever, called, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. I think this is God's way of letting men know that we're a little dense. You know, God parades all of the animals in front, of, in front of Adam and says, name them all. And Adam goes through this and realizes finally at the end of it that there was no one suitable to hang out with him. And so it took all of that time for him to go, God's right. But he does this and it says, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. He's a deep romantic. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Does that work for you up there? You good? No? Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they are both naked, the man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. There's a couple things I want to touch on here. 
One, this is, again, exactly what you'd expect based on our understanding of modern science. First of all, man was formed out of the dust of the ground. So, again, we see this picture that opposes evolution, but gives us the exact picture you would expect to see based on the fossil record. A brand new creation was formed out of the same elements that everything else was formed with. So you would imagine to see similarities, but not any crossover species. That's exactly what the, what the fossil record shows. So God used the same elements to create all of the creatures. He just consistently made them more complex. That's what Genesis tells us. That's exactly what you would expect. Now, the real surprising thing for me is that God made man first and then drew woman out of man. Because Moses didn't have the understanding that we do of how biology works. To the casual observer, you would expect life to come from women. That just makes sense. Females produce life all throughout nature, including in human life. Women, females birth. They have that superpower to create new life in their womb and have it exit and be a brand new life that God has formed in their womb. So to the casual observer, if you were going to make up a story, based on the knowledge you had, you would probably assume that life came from females that's how it works naturally. But this is the interesting thing. Biologically, it couldn't work that way. Man, males, have both an X and a Y chromosome. Females have two Y chromosomes. If females came first, you could not draw a male out of it because there would be no X to draw from. So again, thousands of years before we ever had this understanding of how chromosomes and genetics work, Moses got it right. In human beings, males had to have come first in order for a female to be created out of them because you can't get the X chromosome out of a female. It doesn't work. And I find that completely astonishing. And it, again, it points to the grand sovereignty of a God who stands outside of time. Because as we get move on through time in our understanding of genetics, this makes more sense then you would have expected what would have been written back in 1400 BC. So this takes us to, we are at 745. I really want to do chapter three, but I don't think we have enough time. So that's where we're going to pick up next week um, and try to get through as much of the first section of Genesis um, through the first 11 chapters as much as possible next week. Um, and then we'll be getting into the, the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your story. God, as we watch this unfold, we see even from the very beginning, you were setting us up to understand what you were looking for, what your number of completion is, what your day of rest is, points to the future, points to the cross. God, it is amazing to see what you got right long before we could understand it. And as our, our understanding of biology and cosmology continue to grow, your word continues to make more sense. And I shouldn't be shocked that Moses had it right long before we did. God, thank you so much for opening our eyes and help us to see how big and how sovereign you are and be willing to serve you with all of our hearts and to love you with all of our hearts 
and with all of our minds as we open up your word and all of our strength as we put our faith into action. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.